You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, it was a conversation that shocked and disturbed me. I met up with a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a long time, and he was, uh, when I met up with him, he had been attending a Christian university here in Canada. And I don't remember exactly how we got into this, how the subject came up, but during the course of our conversation, we got talking about the doctrine of the virgin birth. Okay, that's, this is where the conversation went. And I was shocked when he told me that his Bible professor had said that In the grand scheme of things, the doctrine of the virgin birth is really not that important. He said that, I'm like, what? I was shocked by that. And I was disturbed that my friend was buying it. The virgin birth is not important. Just just think about this for a second. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, that means that that, that he has therefore then inherited sin like the rest of us. Being born of a virgin by the work of the Holy Spirit has made it so that Jesus is unique and different. He did not inherit sin like the rest of us. So if he was not born of a virgin, then he's inherited sin. And if he's not born of a virgin and an inherited sin, then being a sinner is certainly not divine. He's not the Son of God. And if he's not the sinless Son of God, then he's disqualified as our Savior. And you tell me that that's not important. Question. What would you say to the administration of that school that's allowing that kind of teaching? Or how about another instance? Back in 2011, a very popular pastor wrote a best-selling book in which he argued that regardless of what anyone believes or decides in this life, in the end, he argued, everyone goes to heaven. And that every sinner will one day realize that they've already been reconciled to God. There is no eternal hell. Everyone goes to heaven. And churches like ours that teach that you must repent and believe on Jesus and that, there are etern- and that teach that there are eternal consequences if you don't repent and believe on Jesus, churches like ours are misguided and our teaching is toxic. Now, I got a question for you. It's, what would you say to the church that lets its pastor teach stuff like that? Well, what would you say to the church that that endorses a book like that? Or a Christian publisher, a so-called Christian publisher, publishing that kind of stuff? Or or how how about this? I know a man who works for an organization that's involved in working in a lot of poor countries around the world, and he was telling me of a troubling trend that they that he has observed where preachers in these countries tell their people that it's God's will for them to be healthy and wealthy. And the reason that they're not is because they don't have enough faith. And so what you need to do as an expression of greater faith is to give money to the church and or to the pastor. And that will be a greater expression of faith. And when you do that, then God will pour on you real, tangible wealth and health. And when they do this, of course, they give money that they don't have. And, and they can't, and can't way beyond what they can afford to do. And, and then when they don't get the results, God looks like a fraud or a phony. 
What, what, what would you say to churches that allow that kind of teaching? And by the way, it's not just in poor countries this nonsense is being peddled. It's being peddled in North America, too. Well, what do you say to a church that allows their preacher to preach that kind of stuff, their, their teacher that teaches that kind of teaching? What would you say to them? Well, I think what we should say to them is what Jesus said to the church at Pergamum. The first century church at Pergamum was a bold, courageous, evangelical church. But in Revelation 2, we hear Jesus warning them that they have in their midst a kind of spiritual poison that's leaching out into the congregation, the poison of false teaching. And Jesus, what Jesus said to them is vital for us to hear if we are going to be a church that's healthy and growing and strong in the weeks to come and, Lord willing, in the years to come. And if they didn't listen and if we don't listen and apply what Jesus says, then, then well, let's look and see what Jesus said would happen. Okay, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. That's our scripture text today, Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. And uh, if, you, if you don't have a copy of scripture with you, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. Just reach out, grab hold of that. It's page 966. Okay, or get your Bible app open on your phone, whatever. I just want you to get it open so you can see. I'm not making this up. And you can see what the Lord says for yourself. You can follow along with me. We're in a teaching series right now called Seven Letters Every Church Needs to Read. Seven Letters Every Church Needs to Read. And it's based out of, we're in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which consists of seven letters. Seven letters from Jesus to real churches, real historical churches in Asia Minor, which is in present-day Turkey. And he had for them a message for each of those churches, but not just for those churches, because every one of those letters calls all the churches to listen carefully to what he was saying to them because it applies to us. This is the, the third letter in the series. The first one was to the church in Ephesus. And uh, the church at Ephesus, they had a problem in their midst, and that was that their love was diminishing. Their love for the Lord, firstly and foremostly, and also probably their love for one another. And he called them that they needed to reprioritize love, that they needed to have renewed affections for the Lord, to repent and return to the works he did at first, get back to that place, to doing what you were doing when you loved me passionately. And then the second letter was to the suffering church at Smyrna. Smyrna was suffering because of persecution, and Jesus, actually, he had no complaint for them. Instead, he encouraged them to, to press on through their difficulty, knowing that Jesus knows all about it, the fact of their sorrows and the feeling of their sorrows. And he held forth the promise of great reward in the end and eternity. Now, the third letter was to the church of Pergamum. And Pergamum was about 100 a, a kilometers northeast of, of Smyrna. And uh, it's, in, it's near the modern-day Turkish city of Bergama. And uh, Jesus, when he wrote to them, he had some positive things to say to them. But he also highlighted a problem. In fact, that's part of the pattern I want you to note as we read this letter. Remember I said earlier when we started our series that there is a, a pattern, a discernible pattern in these letters. All of them starts firstly with a portrait of Jesus, a presentation of Jesus, something about Jesus that he reveals about himself that has special application to the situation in the church that he's addressing. And then uh, in many of these letters, most of these letters, there's some kind of positive or positive, some good things that are happening that Jesus highlights. 
And then in many of these letters, there's a problem, a problem that he addresses, and then a prescription to deal with the problem. And then in each of these letters, it concludes with a promise. See if you can see that as we read through, okay? Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12, says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, remember we've been saying the angel in these churches? It's not like a a spiritual angel. We, We understand it to mean like the pastor, an angel. The word angel means messenger. So it's to the messenger in that church, the pastor, the preacher, the teacher. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So here's the portrait of Jesus. Do you see the portrait? It's Jesus. And at first you're thinking, gentle shepherd, come and lead us. But then you see he's packing heat. He's got a sharp double-edged sword on him. wonder what this could be about. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You don't have to to know anything about Pergamum to imagine that wherever Satan's throne is, it's probably a difficult place to be a Christian. You dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Whoa, so this, we get a sense of what's going on here. These people, this is a tough place to be a Christian. There's been persecution, and even one of them has been killed for their faith. But see the positive? See what Jesus, he encourages them, saying, you hold fast to my name. You're still evangelizing. You're still worshiping me. You're not, you're not wavering on your commitment to me. You love and follow me. And he commends them in that, encourages them in that. But there's a problem. Look at verse 14, what he says next. But I have, but I have a few things against you. <laughs> so there's more than one problem. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Okay, we have no idea yet what he's talking about here, but it don't sound good. We'll circle back to this. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. These were false teachers. Now notice what he says in verse 16. Therefore, repent. That's the prescription. So the problem there's some false teaching going around. And it's, it's more than one type, more than one false teacher. And what are they to do? They're to repent of this. Stop letting it happen. Deal with this. Address this. Well, what if we don't? Well, notice what he says, verse 16. If not, you see that? Therefore repent. If not, so if you don't do this, if you don't repent, if not, I will come to you soon. Oh, awesome. Jesus is coming. Won't this be great? I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. But that doesn't sound very pleasant. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just for Pergamum. It's for Hope Niagara too. It's the Lord's way of saying, listen up. Listen carefully. Notice he says, to the one who conquers, now in the New Testament, to conquer is not to be victorious on your own strength, but it's to trust in the one who has conquered. Jesus gives us victory, and when we trust in him, his victory becomes ours. That's what he says here when he's talking about the conquering. That's what he means to the one who conquers. Notice, I will give him some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone 
with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I wonder what that's talking about. Well, let's, let's start with the portrait. Let's start with the portrait of Jesus. The words of him, verse 12, who has the sharp, two-edged sword. What is Jesus revealing about himself here in this portrait, in this presentation? Well, in the context of Revelation, when you see a sword flashing, a glint of steel, it usually means judgment or war. But you look elsewhere in the New Testament and you find reference to the sword, the sword being in reference to the word of God. So think, for example, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It compares the word of God, its, its ability to, to cut into the human heart as, as being like a sharp two-edged sword. It's precise, it's, it's, it's exacting, it's true, it's powerful. We see in Scripture, too, in Ephesians 6, where Paul refers to the word of God as the sword of the Spirit. So we can see biblically that references to a sword are sometimes uh, a reference, a symbol of the Word of God. We also see in the New Testament that a sword is sometimes a symbol of authority. For example, Romans 13, Paul says there that in God's ordering of things, the governing authorities are given the sword. In other words, they've got authority to rule, to reward good, and to judge evil. Now, what's going on here? So Jesus has a sword, a sharp double-edged sword in his hand. What's going on here? What's the idea? Well, I think it is a, it's, I do think it's primarily a reference to his word and particularly a reference to his authority, his authority and the authority of his word. And in the context here of Revelation, we saw in verse 16 that he's coming to war against them. Who's the them? Well, against the false teachers in opposition. So he, here's the point. So we got, we got teachers that are standing in pulpits and saying, claiming that they're speaking with the Lord's authority, but they're saying things that the Lord has never said. They're teaching things that aren't true. So what's the point here? Here's the point. The final authority, loved ones, the final authority in all matters of doctrine and practice is Christ and his word. The final authority in our lives and in all things, the, the final authority is the Lord Jesus himself and his word, his word that he has spoken. If we want our church to survive and thrive in the years to come, if the Lord gives us years to come, then we must have a shared resolve, loved ones, a shared resolve to be committed to the authority of Christ and the authority of his word. Whereas our affections for Christ must be strong, as in, like in the message to Ephesus, so our commitment to his word must be unwavering. He's in charge. He's the authoritative one. Remember, if you've been with us for a while, remember back in the fall, we preached through a series on the five pillars of our church. These, these five practices that we believe are essential for us to prioritize as a local church. Things we need to be all about doing. And remember the very first pillar. What was pillar number one? You remember? Oh, that ain't good. That ain't good at all, at all. Let me help you out a bit. Okay, you ready? Unapologetic. Oh, there you go. You're just messing with me, right? You're trying to get... Okay, unapologetic preaching. That's right. Proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. The without apology bit, we don't mean we're, we want to be rude about it. We just mean we're not going to compromise the truth of God's word to make it more accommodating for the culture around us. We're going to proclaim the truth in love, but we're going to proclaim the truth. 
Notice we say, too, we, we, we refer to it as the authority of God's word. Not preaching with authority, no, we're preaching the authority of God's word. God has spoken, and because he has spoken, it is authoritative because he is God. And I think that's the picture we have here. We have Jesus reminding us as we look to him. There's many true and wonderful things about Jesus that we can rejoice in together, but loved ones, don't miss this. He is the authoritative one, and what he says is authoritative for you and for me. What are we to teach, loved ones, in our church about our origins, about our purpose, about our destiny? Whatever Jesus says about those things. What are we to teach about our identity, about our sexuality, about our morality? What's right versus wrong? Whatever Jesus says, because he's the authoritative one. Yes, we want to be wise. We want to be winsome. We want to be compelled to live and to work and to preach and to share the gospel with compassion indeed, like the compassion we have been shown in Christ. But we cannot accommodate the culture by compromising the truth. Remember, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And that's what we're after, to be free indeed. This is not my notes. Man, you need to get to free indeed. Okay? You need, to, you need to get to free indeed. So make sure you say, I got something on, cancel it. Seriously. Cancel it and get there. Right? Tell them, I got something else I got to do. I want you to be there. I'll be there. That shouldn't, hopefully that's not a deterrent. I'll be there. It's an encouragement <laughs> to come. Well, if you're there, I don't know. The final authority in all matters of doctrine and practice is Christ and his word. Do you believe that? Do you agree with that? As a church, in your home, in your thinking, in your attitude, the final authority is Christ and his word. Well, and you can, you can see here that in some respects, this is happening in Pergamum. I mean, verse 13, the Lord commends them for being faithful, doesn't he? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne in is, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan is. You know, the ancient city of Pergamum was built atop a 1,000-foot cone-shaped hill. And at that top of that hill were, were shrines and were temples and shrines built to pagan gods. The shrine there was a, a shrine there, an altar there for the god, the Greek god Zeus. There was another temple there built for the, the Greek god of healing. They referred to that god as the savior. And there was a temple there for, for emperor worship. It was expected in Rome that. The people would worship the emperor, and they would go to the temple, and, and part of their worship, they'd take a little bit of incense. You take some incense, and you sprinkle it on the altar, and in so doing, you are proclaiming that Caesar is Lord. You've got believers here with all kinds of social pressure on them to go and to do this. Economic pressure, surely, as they don't participate. They're suffering socially in their business. There's all kinds of pressure and expectation on them that they'll do this. But Jesus commends them because they haven't. They've been faithful and, and they've been suffering for it. Antipas, this dear brother Antipas, whatever happened to him, we, we don't know for sure. But tradition says that he was ordered to be killed and he was killed by being roasted to death in a brass container shaped like a bull. Imagine the, the fear and the terror that must have ripped through the church 
when this beloved Antipas was made an example of. And yet, and yet, Jesus says, you've been faithful to me. So in many respects, this is a good church. In many respects, they're to be admired. They're to be, they set an example for us to follow and, and still evangelizing and still trusting in Jesus and being faithful to him and holding on to hope and, and not giving way in terms of the mission that we're called to. But there was a problem that they needed to deal with. And that problem was false teaching. And that's what Jesus addresses in verses 14 and 15, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. There was false teaching among them. I'll explain what we're talking about Balaam and Balak here. I'll explain that in just a second. But recognize this. Satan does not give up easy. And he works to destroy the church through persecution from the outside. And at the same time, if that fails, or at the same time, he aims to decay the church from the inside through false teaching. So he'll work to destroy us from the outside through persecution. And if that doesn't work, or at the same time, he'll aim to decay us through false teaching. Either strategy works fine. And you got more strategies than that. Either one's fine with him. He's very effective. And Jesus is highlighting this here in Pergamum. Satan working to destroy the church through persecution, it's not working. So now aiming to decay the church through false teaching, it's gaining traction. He infiltrates churches, and if not stopped, if false teachers are not stopped, the fruit of their labors will be to weaken the church, and to cause it to lose her spiritual power to become irrelevant and ultimately to die, rotting it from the inside out. In our house that we just moved from in the GTA, we had in our backyard three big, beautiful trees. Just beautiful, at least in my opinion, they're beautiful. Great big, beautiful maple trees. And um, at the best of times in the summer, they, they'd formed like a, this canopy over the yard. It was just really something. I, I don't know how old they are. They've been there a long, long time. One day I went out in the yard and I found, laying on the ground in the backyard, a gigantic limb that had fallen from way up high on one of these maple trees. And I was surprised to see it laying there. First thought I thought was, I'm glad the kids weren't out here playing when that happened. And then I thought, I'm glad Leanne and I weren't out there either at that time. That would have done some damage. And I walked over, looked at this great big limb, looked at the bark and everything was on the outside. But I looked on the inside of the, the limb and you know what I found? It was all rotted out inside. I'm like, huh, well, that's why it fell. And then actually, I got looking up a little more closer. I'm not really an arborist or anything, but I got looking closer. I'm like, looks to me like there's a few limbs here that need more attention. I got somebody in who's not afraid of heights to try to deal with that. But what had happened to that tree is what happens to lots of churches. False teaching is allowed to persist and pervade. And they begin to get rotted from the inside out as people are drawn away from the Lord. The reference here to Balaam and Balak is, is a fitting one because Jesus shows them it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of similarity in what happened in the Old Testament, Israel, versus what was happening in Pergamum. Now, if you know your Bible really well, you probably know the story of Balak and Balaam. If you don't, here's the basics. Balak was the king of Moab, 
and he saw that God's people, God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel, were achieving victory after victory, and he was getting super nervous. And he became aware that, you know what, there's, there's no physical thing I can do to stop them, so i got to resort to spiritual resources. And he went and he hired this guy named Balaam. Now, Balaam, was, he was not from the nation of Israel. He was a Gentile, but he was a prophet, but a prophet for hire, okay? So you got a problem, you don't know who to call, call the eight, no, call Balaam, and he'll come and try to fix it for you. And he hired Balaam, this prophet, and he said, I want you to call down a curse from God on the nation of Israel. And Balaam said, you're wasting your time. I, I can't do that. I, I, can't, I can't get God to curse his people. He said, well, what am I paying you for? Get over there and do it. Balaam's like, okay. So he goes over and tries to get God to call down curses on his own people. But instead, all he can do is prophesy blessings over them. And Balak's all flustered and angry. He's like, what are you doing? What am I paying you for? I'm not paying you to bless them. I'm paying you to curse them. He's about, I'm telling you, I can't. What am I paying you for? And so he goes back out, tries it again. This goes on about three times or so before eventually. Eventually, Balaam's like, I told you. It's not going to work. And so eventually Balaam went on home. But before he left, Numbers 31 tells us that before he went on back home, he gave Balak a fateful piece of advice. He said, you're paying me money here to get God to curse his own people. That ain't ever going to happen. But if you really want to get God's people, you got to rot them out from the inside. you got to get them to be enticed away from faithfulness of God. And so the Bible says that Balak took Balaam's advice and he found his way to weasel into the hearts of the men of Israel through food and sex. The Moabite women came out and hosted a great feast in worship of the God, of their God, their pagan God. And the Bible says that when they did this, the people joined in with them. In fact, it says the people, Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2 says, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, that's strong language. But the message is really clear. Israel yoked itself, joined itself to Baal, to the neighbors, the people in the culture, the people there, they assimilated in, they accommodated They were unfaithful to the Lord. God's special people who were set apart unto himself got tangled into being unfaithful to him. And as a result, God came with a sword of types, a plague amongst his people, and 24,000 people perished. Serious stuff. Now Jesus says, what you got in Pergamum is right out of Balaam's playbook. If you want to destroy God's people, Balaam's teaching was get them to assimilate with the cults around them, get them to go along with the people around them, and use food and sexual lust. Get people to think it is sensible and reasonable. And I mean, it's, it's important what you believe, but it's not all that important what you do, is it? Actually, I think that's probably at the heart of what the Nicolaitans were teaching See, reference them again. We've seen them already in Revelation in our study. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know for sure, for sure, exactly the content of their teaching, but it seems apparent that whatever it was they were saying, the effect of their teaching was to get the people of God, to get people in the church to, yeah, you believe one thing. But really, as long as you believe right, you can do really whatever you want. Disconnecting behavior and action from confession and belief. 
And the effect of their teaching was to lead people away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ. False teaching leading people into disobedience and unfaithfulness to the Lord. This was Satan's strategy at Pergamum. And listen, loved ones, listen. It's his strategy still today. I was at a conference a few years ago where the presenter was talking about trends in the church in Canada. And he noted, he talked to us about a major, a major denomination in our country with over 100 years of history that was in rapid decline. They were, at the time, they were closing about one church every week. And I remember that presenter saying, you know, over the next 10 years, it's present, it is projected that in Canada they will close 1,000 churches. And as far as I can see, that has indeed been happening. And we ask ourselves, why? Why is that happening? Well, some would try to explain it this way. They would say, well, you know, it's just times have changed. And people don't go to church like they once used to. And, and I suppose there's truth in that. But I'll tell you right now, I do not believe for a minute that is why these churches are closing. I believe that that denomination is in rapid decline and they are closing a church a week because they have abandoned the authority of God's word. That is why they're going down. They felt so compelled to be accommodating to the culture, to make the message of the gospel more palatable for people. And they have sacrificed the truth of God's word, the authority of God's word, for horizontal helpfulness and cultural appeasement. And the Lord has left the building. Let's not think for a minute that we are, that we are immune to that kind of error. The reality is, is that we have to ask ourselves a very difficult question. Do we want Jesus to be for us or against us? Churches that are compromising on the authority of God's word are what I would call over-tolerant churches. Tolerance has its place. We are indeed to be a hospital for sinners. I believe that. We're to be a place where the broken, the oppressed, the confused, the crushed, can come and find hope and spiritual healing in Jesus. I do believe that. And our hearts should be open and our attitude humble, our posture patient, but our commitment to the truth bold. After all, what kind of hope do we really have to offer outside of the whole truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Churches become over-tolerant when they become, they spend more time dissecting books written by people instead of the book written by God. Churches become over-tolerant when our position on moral issues is influenced more by society than by scripture. Churches become over-tolerant when arguments are waged over preferences instead of prescriptions of the word of God. And loved ones, let's not kid ourselves. There is serious pressure on us as a local church, serious pressure on us to compromise the authority of God's word. I think, for example, of issues like gender identity and human sexuality. These are examples, just two examples, prominent ones, where there's pressure for us to give in, where we, where we see in the church at large, there's lots of reinterpreting going on and, and people saying, ah, you know, maybe we need to have a conversation about this. No, we don't need to have a conversation about this. God has spoken. He's spoken. 
And he's actually pretty clear. The theological gymnastics that are done to reinvent the, the truth of God's word and to serve it up on a platter so it's palatable for the culture is astounding to me. But it's nothing new. It was in danger of happening at Pergamum, and Jesus is calling them out on this and saying, you need to deal with this. In fact, that's his message to them, isn't it? Right, right at the heart of it. The church must repent of tolerating false teaching. Do you see that in verse 16? Like it's, it's pretty stark there. In my Bible, it's a two-word sentence. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. How do we repent? Well, we repent by, first of all, confronting false teaching. Saying that this isn't true. This doesn't accord with Scripture. We do it by correcting false teaching. And by the way, just to be clear what I mean by false teaching... I'm not talking about what we might call secondary doctrines. Of course, all doctrine in God's word is important. But there are issues, there are matters that good, godly, careful students of Scripture can study diligently and come to differing positions. And, and that happens in the church. We, we see that lots. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian. But there are issues that, that maybe we'll see differently, and the Bible would, would, would show us that in some of these things, it's charity is the right way, and, and there's a time and a place to agree to disagree. But when I'm talking about false teaching, I'm not talking about debatable matters. I'm talking about non-negotiable matters, like, like the things you must believe if you're a Christian, like, like the triune nature of God, like, like the reality of, of the atoning work of Jesus, like the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus, in his atoning work on the cross, and by his resurrection. These are the non The virgin birth, I would say, is a non-negotiable of the faith. In fact, when I think about the, the, you know, the examples I started with, I think the, those are things that we can't fudge on. You know, the virgin birth, if we, we set aside the virgin birth, as some are wont to do, I know it's not a hot topic right now, but you can tell it's a hot topic with me. It's important, because the deity of Jesus is important. And by the way, salvation from sin is important. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. Hell is a real thing. And, and I don't, honestly, I don't know how, how can you read the Bible? I just don't see it, how you can read the Bible and tell me that there's not judgment to come. That God doesn't have a righteous, holy anger against sin that he will deal with, either in the sinner or through Jesus on the cross. And listen, listen, to deny that, those who deny that, I would say are not Christians. I can't remember what the other one was now. I'm so wound up here. <laughs> oh, yeah, the prosperity gospel. Listen, any good news that says you got to work yourself to fix this is not good news. No, let's look to Jesus. The, the blessings that he has for us are spiritual. And one day, when we're in heaven, you will be crazy healthy and crazy wealthy. That's not his plan. That's not his will for you right now. There are many who propagate things like these teachings and others. And that's exactly who Jesus is talking about. And the issue in Pergamum was that the saints in the church were not stopping them. They weren't correcting them. They weren't calling out and saying, hey, you got this wrong. That's not true. You can't, you can't just say you believe in Jesus and then go on down to the pagan temple and confess Caesar is Lord. Those things don't go together. 
You, you can't show up at church on Sunday and sing praises unto God and utter prayers and then go off and sleep with your girlfriend all week. You, you can't do that. That's not, that's not what you're called to in Jesus. You're saved to be sanctified unto him, to be made into his likeness. Walking in sin is not walking in freedom. You see, people are teaching this stuff, and the church is called to stop them, confront it, correct it, and clear it out. Loved ones, let me ask you in your own personal life, is there any clearing out that needs to be done? Like, who are you listening to? What are they, what are they telling you? Hope Niagara, expect, expect to hear God's word preached each Sunday. Expect to hear expositional preaching. Expect it. What I mean by expositional preaching, I mean exposing the truth of God's word. It's my job as a preacher. I want to proclaim the authority of God's word, and in doing it, I believe in expositional preaching, which means I just expose for you. Look and see. If you, here's what the Lord says, right? Therefore, repent. Okay, what, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to expose for you the fact that it means that where there's, there's false teaching going on, this false teaching shows up here, we've got we to stop it. We've got to clear it out. We've got to get the truth right. And, and the call here is where that is not happening to make it happen. See, I'm, I'm exposing for you the truth of God's word. You should be able to look at your Bible. And, not, and there's lots of texts that are really hard, right? But, but if I'm doing my job well, and if the Holy Spirit's helped me, which I trust him to do every week, then, then you should be able to look at your Bible like, oh yeah, no, I see that. I see that. Yeah, that's right here. Expect that because we believe in the authority of God's word. He has ultimate authority. The call for the church is to repent. Repent of tolerating false teaching. Now, this is a hard thing. I mean, in this culture, it was hard in Pergamum for different reasons. It's hard now. Lots of pressure, lots of shaming going on towards Christians, and who knows what more is to come. It could be a scary thing, but here's, here's, the, here's the wild thing about this text. Jesus is calling us to do it. This sort of makes me think about, you know like when you're, when you're driving your car, and you're driving along in the wintertime, and all of a sudden you encounter a blizzard? And it's just like, like you're going along, and all of a sudden like the wind picks up, and the snow starts blowing, and you can't see anything. Isn't that like the worst feeling in the world? It's like, it's like worse than forgetting your passport at the airport. It's like you can't see anything. All you can see, you can barely see the hood ornament in front of your vehicle, and you're, you're just going along there, and you're gripping the steering wheel. But what, what are you going to do? You can't stop. Because if you stop, the dude behind you is going to pile into the back of you. You, you have to keep going, but you, you can't see where. You just kind of got to go slow and put the four ways on and hold on that wheel and say, Jesus, help me, right? And just keep going. That's, that's actually, in some ways, what we're faced with. It's a little scary. But wonderfully, we, don't, we aren't just left by God to white-knuckle it. No, he gives us help. Of course, he, he gives us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who empowers us for ministry. He gives us the fellowship of the saints so we encourage one another. He's given us the truth of his words so we can go back to it and, and be reminded again about what's true. But he also, here in this context, gives us promises. Promises that empower us. Promises that encourage us. And it's in verse 17. Notice what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. That's the one who's trusting in Jesus. I will give him some hidden manna. What is this hidden manna? Well, manna in the Old Testament 
It was how God fed the nation of Israel, kept them alive. They ate this bread from heaven. It's called manna because it means what is it? They went out and they found on the ground. It's, it's food, that's what it is, and they, they ate it. Now there's hidden manna. What's this hidden manna? Well, Jesus says in the New Testament that he is the bread of life, the true bread from heaven. So I think, I think, the hidden manna is the bread, the true bread that gives us true life. He's hidden, not entirely because we see him with the eyes of faith, but he's hidden from us physically. Only one day he will no longer be hidden when we're with him forever. It's that hidden manna, it's that promise of everlasting life. The white stone, notice he talks about a white stone. The one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna and I will give him a white stone. Lots of different views on what this is. Here's my sense. In the Jewish context, a white stone was given as a pass for admission to a special occasion. Kind of like, like I was at a sporting event recently, and I had a, before I go in, I got to show them a ticket. Right now it's on your phone. There's no more paper tickets. I got to show them my phone, get this, thing to, get this thing to register, and you hear the beep, and the beep sound, that means you're in. Yes, I'm into the game. Well, when you show up in heaven, I don't know that there'll be a beep, but this white stone, I believe, represents the admission the believer has into eternal glory through the righteousness, white stone righteousness of Jesus Christ. A new name. I'll give you a new name, a stone with a new name written on, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To know someone's name in antiquity is to know them personally, intimately. A new name I don't know this for sure, but here's what I think. I think the new name refers to a new status that we'll have in the day of resurrection when we'll be with the Lord and we will have, we will have intimate fellowship with him. Revelation 22 and 4 says, of you, they will see his face, Jesus' face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Taken together, it's God's promise for tomorrow, given to encourage you to act today. He gives us his promises to encourage us, his promise for tomorrow to encourage us to act today. It takes courage to press on in the face of opposition, but he encourages us with the certainty that there's coming a day when it will be so worth it that we've honored Jesus. So loved ones, I'll just close with the question I asked a few minutes ago, and it's this one. It's a serious one. I want you to seriously hear this question and answer it in your heart. Hope Niagara, do we want the Lord to be for us or against us? If we want him to be for us, then we must be together in being committed to the authority of Christ and his word to be careful and discerning about what we hear, what we read, what we teach. And to do what we're going to do right now, to pray for God's grace for us as a church to be serious about the truth and to be serious in the power of Christ and the love that he gives us. So let's pray.